0: chapter 16 And here it is starting with verse 1 Now Sarah with an i hmm and Abram without an h Sarah Abram's wife had borne him no children She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar And Sarah said to Abram Behold now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Of course, you know already that what's transpired before this, they're expecting to be expecting, you know, by miracle. But she says, no go. Go in then, she says, to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, because you know, men always just do this stuff. Wives say, so, After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw, that is, Sarah saw, I think, that she had conceived, that the other she had conceived, a lot of pronouns here, she looked with contempt upon her mistress, And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar that is, of course, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered from multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. So she... Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, quote, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahairoi. And it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And so may God teach us and apply this Word. Here we have in this passage three names given. No, three names given. One of them, to a son to be born. One of them, sort of a description that she makes of God who's talking to her. And one of them, the place where it all happened as well. And for us, of course, you know, these names tell us something early on. This is really early in the story. There ain't no Israel yet. There's none of those guys. There's none, the, none of the patriarchs, the prophets. I mean, you just have the first one. You just have Abram with his old name, and Sarah with her old name before they're tweaked. You know, that's what we have. We don't have any history here yet of any kind of a people. So it's an important early, early lesson telling them something about this God who, you know, showed up and called an old man out of nowhere and literally kind of lived in nowhere. And told him this grand story of the future, how it's all going to be. Well, who is he? I mean, what is he like? And so here, here is something we learn about what he's like. And that's sort of what we've been doing. We've been looking at all these names and descriptions that God has you know, that are revealed in these different accounts. Most of them have weird Hebrew sounding names to them. But they all mean things. And they mean things that... Describe characteristics or attributes of God. Now, people, through all the years, have explained attributes of God. And as time went on, you know, they're not just Hebrew words anymore, but they filtered through other languages. And so, a lot of theologians once upon a time hammered out various descriptions and attributes of God using Latin type words. And a lot of those Latin words would have omnis in them. Because omni just means all, right? All or every omni. So that, you know, what, like, what does an omnivore eat? Everything, right? Like some of your dogs do or your kids. Just eat everything. Omni, all the omnis. Some people I heard the last few couple of months referring to that, uh, referring to that variant of the COVID as the Omnicron. By the way, including people in the press. But that wasn't what that was called. I don't know what they... It sounded to me like another attribute of God. But, no, that was Omicron, without the N. Some people didn't get that message. It's just a Greek letter of the alphabet, by the way. Not the long O at the end. That's the Omega. But the little O in the middle. The short O. The Omicron. But here are the Omnis. And the ones I'm really focusing on are, because of this passage, are the second two. We will get around probably to maybe more about that first one, the ability to do anything, the potency, the all potency. But here we're looking at these kind of attributes that these later theologians would use these these Latin terms to describe them. But they're the omni, the sort of all abilities of God, that God can actually be in every place at the same time. Giving him the ability to see everything that's ever happening anywhere, to hear anything that's making sound anywhere, and thereby to know everything that ever is happening and, of course, remember it permanently. And really, it's easy for me to just say all that, but it's a whole lot harder to really imagine that. I mean, it's nearly impossible, really, isn't it, to, to truly comprehend how that could be possible? I mean really I mean I mean just the idea that there could be a mind that totally vast to to really know everything that's knowable every kind of claim every proposition you could make about anything and this would number in the trillions every minute detail of anything God knows that thing in fact he knows every true statement or proposition and he doesn't wrongly believe any false ones see that that's what that's what it means to be perfect in knowledge omniscient literally just means all knowledge science comes from the old latin word for knowledge how is that possible you think about it what it means for example god knows the current temperature on the surface of the planet Mercury at a specific given spot or location. While also knowing simultaneously the number of larvae in a moth that a moth produced in a specific tree deep in a forest somewhere in Montenegro, just to pick a place. While also knowing the exact movements of some eyeless crab way down deep seven miles down on the floor of the Mariana Trench. God knows the song that a woman in Uruguay might be humming right now on her way back home from the market while knowing at the same time the rare blood type of a baby that's being born this second in a village in Zambia while he's hearing attentively The deathbed confession and prayer of repentance of a former criminal in some crowded hospital in Singapore. And I could just go on from there. Because whatever it is, and however specific and particular and peculiar and wildly uh, different the one from the other, God just knows all those things. And that is a real mind bending idea that such a being could exist. But that's what Omni means. Omni breaches no exceptions. It's not just God's real smart. I mean, like smarter than any person. Yeah, it's true, but that kind of understates the matter. The only response, I mean, <laughs> to that, just to thinking about all that, what could the only response be? Just amazement, sheer amazement, and awe, and worship. That's what it should inspire. Now, there could be some people for whom that idea does not make them so much inspired toward worship. There could be those who sort of are in a position of, uh, as Pete was talking about, hostility toward God, enmity, maybe even open hostility. Maybe they just oppose the idea that such a being would know their thoughts, so they sort of feel rebellious. And if that's your position then I mean these truths would worry you because the fact is there's just no escaping from God. There's no you can't get away from it and opt out. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, You are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. There's just no getting away from it. So there was, uh, you know, I remember a somewhat famous atheist from some years ago who liked to go out and sort of you know, be open about this and debate people and everything. One of the things I always thought was sort of comical, even, that he would say in, in part of his kind of rhetorical uh, opposition to the whole idea that God is theirs, he would say, Well, you know, this is like some kind of a giant uh, dictator in a huge surveillance state, you know? Uh, he, he would call it a celestial North Korea. We're all being watched like those Chinese communist guys. with the, They put cameras everywhere trying to monitor every citizen. All your moves, wherever you go, whatever you do. How are you spending your money? Try to keep good tabs on everybody and what they're doing. And he said, that's what God's like. That's what that's like. I mean, what about my privacy? Huh? How dare you? Knowing my thoughts and everything I ever do. Even though I don't want people to know. And yet he knows it. And I, the reason I sort of found that a little bit comical was, first of all, you know, the... the the, the clever I'll grant it's a little bit clever but but yet dishonest part of that kind of analogy is, is the comparison that is sort of assumed a comparison between a flawed and very corrupt human ruler with obviously mixed motives you know to put it mildly and really sinful motives that's trying to attain that kind of power that the comparison you're sort of You're sort of hiding in the analogy something you assume as if God would just be like us but with infinitely more ability to surveil everybody. Like if I gave you that kind of power. Yeah, I'd be worried if I gave any of you that kind of power. Yeah, I'd be concerned. But you see, we're talking about a completely different person altogether. And that's what's sort of lost in the analogy. And furthermore, I mean, come on. The the most powerful dictators in this world aren't with the greatest technology could only hope in their wildest dictatorial fantasies to come anywhere near the kind of ability God has to truly surveil. People talk about thought police. There's really no such thing because nobody can really read minds. Oh, but God can. Plus, the other thing I always wanted to say in response to that was, if God were like us and flawed in those ways but with that kind of knowledge and armed with that kind of power to know our thoughts and motives and everything about us then yeah i guess i'd be worried but here's the kicker what are you going to do about it i mean you can complain but that's about your complaints go nowhere because frankly that's what i always wanted to ask the guy he's he's up against the problem that uh, he's up against what the psalmist described where can i go what can I do? what what? You gonna make your appeal? What's his recourse if he doesn't like it? What you're gonna go you're gonna appeal that to a higher court? There is no higher court. So, yes, God can read your mind. Yeah, that's true. He knows all of your thoughts and motives. And if you don't like it, that is, as we used to say, hard cheese, my man. You know, tough toenails, as they say. This is—I t- don't know what to tell you. I might suggest you repent if you've got some things that you wish you could hide from him. That's my suggestion to you. Well, you know, when Jesus interacted with people, he had this advantage. Even though he was human, he was no—he was not short of being human or less than human. In any way. And yet, he had had this advantage that none of us has. That is, he was not limited still in the ways that we are. Jesus couldn't be lied to. It must have been annoying for some people that knew it. They tried to lie to him. He would just know they couldn't do that to him. The woman at the well, you know, thought that she had met a perfect stranger. She talked to him like he was. And, you know, there's something about. Uh, there's something about when you meet a stranger there's doesn't know anything about you. There's, it's always a completely clean slate that you have. Unless that stranger just is the type to really prejudge people uh, in the most vicious ways. And then they might just assume things about you that are completely unfair. But if that person doesn't know you at all, every stranger is a kind of a clean slate, right? And you sort of start from scratch. You can tell a stranger whatever you want about yourself. Some people do that. You just lie, you know, make stuff up about who you know and where you're from and your experiences. and They don't know. You could be, you, you could be a real scoundrel, but you could paint yourself <clears throat> as just a wonderful person. Of course, in real life, sometimes people meet people. And that happens, and they think that they're great people. And then they discover later that that person lied to them. Unfortunately, that happens with people. Sometimes you get married to people, and then they realize what? You didn't tell me about that rap sheet you had. You, didn't, you owe, you owe the IRS how much money? You did what? How many people you killed? I, I mean, whatever. You know they don't know they because you know every a stranger doesn't know you yet, and unlike God, doesn't know every detail of everything you've done and all of your motives. The woman at the well thought, "I'm just meeting this guy." And then he went and did something that in ordinary circumstances, let's admit, it would be kind of scre- uh, scary to you and, and weird you out a little. Wouldn't it? If somebody, think about it, if you if you meet somebody you don't know, and yet that person knows things about you that make you nervous? And it does me. It's like, what? How, how do you know my name? You know, I just call you by name. How, wait, how do you know my name? What? How do you know that about me? I don't know you. It's creepy if somebody knows things about you and you don't know that person under ordinary circumstances, you know? It's like, uh, so if John meets somebody out in the hallway of the theater and he, and he says in his polite and friendly way, why can't I help you? And that person says, no, I'm fine, John. Do you wear a name tag? Okay, well, that doesn't work then. If you didn't wear a name tag and they said it, then you'd be like, no, I'm fine, John, Lang. You'd be like, huh? Do I, oh, have we met? Do I know you? No, but I know you, mister. <laughs> yes, John, I know you very well. You who, and uh, they start telling you things, you know. I know your favorite anime character, my friend. Oh, yes, John, indeed. You, you make a mean pork chop. Which you did two nights ago, as I'm well aware. And it gave you a stomachache, didn't it, John Lang? (laughs) Ring a bell? Yeah, I mean, that would be weird. That's the kind of thing you see in movies. Somebody knows it. And yet, so, here, you know, Jesus, though, does actually know that woman, things about her that she wouldn't think that he would know. And he sort of just says it to her, you know? About her marital status and history with men, and she he, now he's not he's not doing it to weird her out, of course, because he didn't have those kind of motives. He's trying to really help her and minister to her, but but he just does happen to know those things, and and she shows by her response ultimately right that she didn't think he was just some kind of a creepo, but that she recognizes. Wait a minute, this this man. This is of God. And that's what she goes and tells people. But in point of fact, all of this, all of this that we're saying is just one angle or one perspective of this. This has sort of all just been focused on the negative aspect of God knowing everything about us. The, the, the negative side of it, if you want to call it that, is that yes, God knows all the dirty secrets that you've ever had and all of your motives and, if, and to the, the degree to which they're mixed, and you can't hide anything from God. Yes, that's part of what this is, but that's sort of what we could see as the, the, the sobering part of the negative part. But there's another side to this. And by the way, it's, it's that other side to this that is the point of this passage and that explains what these names meant, right? Because he says, you'll name the child Ishmael. And that means, as it says, because you'll name that because God has heard you. Ishmael, God has heard you. Remember how we talk about what we call this Shema, the passage where it says, hear, O Israel. Shema, O Israel, that's the verb. Ishmael, God hears you, but not in a creepy, weird way, like, ah, I've been wiretapping you, Hagar. I heard everything you said. Not like that. But like, no, I'm aware of your situation. You don't think anybody cares about you. You're just some servant. You've been cast out. You fled because you've been mistreated and you think nobody knows what I've been through. Nobody knows that I've been done wrong. Nobody know I, I mean Hagar didn't ask you brought into this. She's just being a servant and they had this they had this message and they're going to have a child and it's going to be a miracle baby and all this stuff and they're the ones it was Sarah who said, "Well, I guess it's. I guess we're supposed to bring Hagar into this cuz I can't conceive a child." She didn't ask for this. And, then, and yet now it all went sideways and now she's been mistreated. She's on the run. And nobody knows that I'm out here alone. But see, what God is saying is, that's not true. Somebody did know what's going on. Somebody did hear this. Somebody knows your side of the story. I know your side of the story. I've been watching. And so God hears. By the way, Ishmael, You know we don't talk a lot about Ishmael as a character in the Bible, but there are those who do. And you may know this, but... Once upon a time in the very early Middle Ages, um, a man in Arabia who had been exposed to Jewish teachings and his trade routes and, and Eastern Christians um, said that he was visited by an angel from the Bible, Gabriel, who told him a whole lot of revelation. And in his story and in his accounts, Ishmael factors a whole lot more seriously so that to this very day, Muslims, all I mean, the millions of them around the world, Muslims, because of that, revere Ishmael as a great prophet, and they believe that he was the child that was brought up to the mountain, that was supposed to be sacrificed, and they believe many of them that the entire, uh, all the Arab peoples were descended from Ishmael, and they have um, holidays every year where they reenact the sacrifice and it's Ishmael it's a, and they and they have holidays by the way where they reenact um, Hagar going out into the wilderness it's fascinating history and of course there's a little bit of prophecy in that passage where he, he says that'll be his name and he'll be a wild donkey of a man like it's not going to be the easiest life and you know maybe that those prophetic words echo past even the biblical timeline but Then she calls God. It says she calls this God, Yahweh, who speaks to her. And the word there is El-Roi. El-Roi. God who sees me. Literally, that little E at the end. Who sees me. And if you wonder, what would that look like in Hebrew? Well, let me show you what it would look like in Hebrew. Or let somebody show you. What that looks like for the God who sees me. God hears, her her cries, and God sees her situation. This is the only time, by the way, that this is used this way. It's sort of not like uh, I said last week we were looking at you know, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, and I said that name is used lots of times throughout the Bible. Not so with this one. That verb is used a lot, and the idea is repeated that God sees, but just sort of like that construction like that, that names God in that way. It's unique to this passage. Now, is the point of this, of course, to say that God sees all of her sins and hears all of the worst things. No, he know he does know her sins, but that's not the point here. That's not the point here. You see, she's not afraid to learn that. She isn't, she's, not, she's not cowering in fear, saying, "Oh no, God sees me. Oh no, where can I hide?" No, you see her response. She's glad. That's why she's happy to name the place and to name this well here too. The same thing gets a name too. The same basic name. The place of the place of the one who sees me, the one who sees God, and she's glad about it. She's glad that God sees, reassuring her that her suffering, it's not unknown. It's, she is not suffering in silence, as they say, and the world never can see. She's not just in the dark on this whole thing. If God sees it. He knows. And that's the assurance she has. That there is a high court, there is a final and ultimate court, and that judge knows it all. Think about that. What, what if people were told that in the end, there is a final court you, we all stand in one last final courtroom and, the, and there's no jury, it's a judge. He's judge, jury and executioner. And that judge needs no evidence brought before him in no case because that judge knows it all. Now, that make a person feel good or not? That question depends 100% on a person's standing before that judge does it not a lot of people if they truly believe that if they're told that and they believe that they will be struck with a certain terror rightly so because they think oh no i did everything in this life and i fooled everybody and under the table i did my own thing and i was as corrupt as the day is long and i've just been an abusive uh person though but i but i pretended to be good and I figured I could sort of just keep representing myself well. I just figured I could hire the best lawyer money could buy and I'll still keep skating by. But you just told me that in this court the judge knows everything. I'm hosed. I'm done for. See, however, however for for the person who says, you know, I suffered and I was done wrong in this life and nobody knows it. I toiled away. I was I was at the bottom of the ladder the whole way through. I got nothing but grief, nothing but abuse. Other people got all the goods in life. I got stepped on along the way. And nobody knows that I was done wrong. That person says, ah, but in this final court, you mean that judge knows the truth? Knows I was wrongly accused. But not in that court you're not wrongly accused. You will only be rightly accused in that court. And none of the wrong accusations will stick. Because that judge knows everything. See, now that person would welcome, kind of like Hagar, would be happy to know that. And Christians, of course, can only think of how of how bad it would be if not for the grace of God. Jesus said the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you do your spiritual acts and your things, when you pray, see, you don't need you don't need to go out and make a big show out of. And pray out loud with your eloquent words, because you know you need everyone to know. Ooh, wow, what a prayer warrior! Because what he said is, no, you do. You can do that privately, because the only person who counts, he hears it. What if I? What if I just thunk it? Well, as I said, he you reads your thoughts. So, if people were even forbidden from ever. Vocalizing a prayer. See, you can't really prevent prayer, can you? Because you can't get in here and prevent prayer until right up to the point at which you just uh, thoroughly drug people or something, you know, completely brainwash them so that their mind is not their own anymore. Right up until that point, you can't stop prayers. And Jesus said, See, that's all. You don't have to do that. Your Father. He he hears what's done in the quiet places. And when you give, if you do good deeds and you give, see, you don't have to make a big show of that either. You can give in the quietest possible way where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. You can do it that way. Because He says, your Father, He sees that stuff in secret. In in case you're worried like, but I'm giving and I'm giving and, and and the Lord may not know He may he may just not know all the good I've done. He knows all the good you've done. He knows all of it. The good, the bad, oh yeah, the ugly. He knows all of it. There was a there was a great song by the late and great songwriter Rich Mullins, and he basically took Psalm, he took Psalm 139, the part that I read to you earlier. And his song, he just basically did it. He basically used that psalm kind of word for word, but then he wrote his own um, chorus to it. And in his chorus, he says, "Nothing. It's still a prayer. It's in second person. Nothing is beyond you." He says, "You stand beyond the reach of our wildest imaginations and our." misguided piety. The heavens stretch to hold you and Deep calls out to Deep saying that nothing is beyond you. Time cannot contain you. You span eternity and sin can never stain you and death has lost its sting. And I cannot imagine how you came to love me except to say that nothing is beyond you.